Welcome to Money in the Air, the music podcast about neighboring rights, the royalties you earn from the public performance of your recordings and the business of music in general. Brought to you by IFR, the International Association for Artists and Rights Holders. I'm Andrew, a royalty consultant helping artists to collect on their value. Hi, I'm Gina Deacon. I work for Absolute Rights Management and I work with record labels and artists to ensure we claim the royalty income due to them. I'm Stacey Haber and I'm from Inside Baseball Music Publishing. Hi, I'm Tanya Oliveira. I work for Transparence Entertainment Group. I focus on World X USA neighboring rights on the performer side and rights holder side. Hello, welcome back to Money in the Air, the neighboring rights podcast brought to you by IFR, the International Association for Artists and Rights Holders. And today, Andrew, Tanya, and I are going to talk about Oh, definitions and jargon and words and initials and all the things that stop the conversation and stop the learning because you don't know what it means. I think it's good to start with CMO. So that's the acronym that stands for Collective Management Organization. And in this business, they're also often referred to as collectives or societies. It all means the same thing. It's, it is essentially a society. So PPL is a CMO, GVL, AIE, Sound Exchange, et cetera, et cetera. I've heard the U.S. people talk about CMOs as PROs. And of course, performing rights organizations, we talk about on the publishing side. So I think they're just confusing the issue, but it is what it is. That's an excellent point. Yeah, PRO is, I would say, strictly for publishing, but then CMOs are often referred to as PROs. So you can imagine if you're like a self-administering musician and you're just like, it just makes your mind get a bit blown, you know? Absolutely right. Yeah. Well, as our resident U.S. (laughs) representative, I always differentiate between CMO and PRO. CMO is Collective Management Organization. We just only have Sound Exchange here in the U.S., but PRL is Performing Rights Organization. We should not confuse the two. Performing Rights Organization corresponds to your performance rights on the music composition side. There it is. We have made rules and IP. Tell the people what IP is. Yeah, so that can cause confusion because people often think you're talking about intellectual property, but in neighboring rights, when you ask your account manager at PPL, for example, like, hey, what's my IP? That's meaning international picture. Where are you registered around the world at all the different CMOs? Do you have a conflict? Where is the conflict? For example, a GVL and PPL both collecting in Germany for you, therefore creating a conflict. I talk about IP quite a lot. And then that leads nicely into IPD, International Performer Database. Most CMOs have access to the IPD. International Performer Database. If you submit a new registration as a representative on behalf of a musician, they'll log on to the database and they'll just check, you know, is this person already affiliated with PPL or or actually they have a worldwide you know, sound exchange mandate. So let's rectify that or clean up the conflicts. So yeah, IP and IPD are often in the same sentence. And then you'll hear IPN, International Performer Number. Then every performer has one of those as soon as they're affiliated with at least one CMO, you'll get a local ID. So at PPL, you get your PPL performer number. And in addition, you'll have your IPM, your like your international performer number. And all the CMOs will be able to see that. And it helps avoid duplicates because you can imagine lots of musicians share the same name by looking at the IPN as well as dates of birth. They you know you can it's easy to filter down results. 
and the IPN will be the same all over the world. You only get the one, right? Yes, in theory. In theory. I have experienced just a handful of times where there's multiple IPNs and it was just like a clerical error. And it's usually when two performers share the same name and even the same birth date. But uh, yeah, in theory, one IPN I've, worldwide. I've seen multiples when somebody registers in one name, like if Jim instead of James, because that's how they're known professionally, forgot and 10 years later re-register as James. And now all of a sudden they have two accounts, two numbers and a lot of admin to get it rectified. That's a great point. Yeah, I've experienced that as well. Yeah, it's when you're going by an alias, but you have your legal name as otherwise. Yeah, but you can clean it up for sure, but it does take a lot of time and admin and it helps if you have a rep because that's something a rep would do on your behalf, like clean up the duplicates around the world. Absolutely, relying on it. <laughs> it's always my recommendation. Then there are other things that we talk about, like ISRC. Yeah, I mean, that is like the holy grail for metadata. So that means International Standard Recording Code. And it's uh, 12 digits long. And in theory, every recording on the planet should have one. So if you remaster it, remix a track, there in theory should be a new ISRC for that. Yeah, it's needed in rights holder. And I'll add to that with... I, every ISRC should be linked to their corresponding ISWC, which is the International Work Standard Code, and that is the code for the music composition. So that's the social security number for the music composition that should be linked to the ISRC, and there would lie a perfect match. Often it doesn't, but it's the way for every single composition to be identified and every single recording to be identified as well. I have seen artists who have taken their recordings back or got their recordings back from the label and have given their recordings new ISRC numbers when they release it themselves. But they don't have to do that, do they? They can release it themselves using the old ISRCs. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, definitely. But does it matter if they give it new ones because it's a new release? No, it doesn't matter. But um, I think it makes sense to stick with the original ISRC just to ensure that income flows to the right rights holder, the right recording. Because quite often, you know, for example, MJ's Thriller, there's like 100 ISRCs for Thriller. Because to be fair, there have been reissues, remasters, remixes. People take on the rights over the years. And it's just more work, I suppose, for everyone to claim all of them. So I always try, yeah, I advise stick to the original ISRC. I, I'm going to play devil's advocate. I think they should have new ISRCs with their own prefix. So it is clear that they own it and nobody can confuse it by going back to the original label. The first two characters in an ISRC is the country code. So, you know, US or GB or DE for Germany. And then the following three characters are usually letters. And that's usually the record label or the rights holders initials or. And yeah, it would help things if, you know, if you're a small label and your identifier is, for example, UK SHH, then it's just easier to clarify and, you know, explain to someone, you know, this is my labels identifier. This, this is definitely my ISRC. So yeah, there's nothing wrong with doing that. I think um, just because like with Gina, who's not here today, we, we deal with so many ISRCs that we it's for us, it makes things easier when, you know, you're just transferring a batch of ISRCs from one rights holder to another. Okay, cool. And when do you need a UPC? Ah, UPC. So again, most rights holder CMOs require this. What is so it? Yes. What is it? A universal product code. 
Is that the barcode? Um, yes, exactly. So the UPC is the Universal Product Code, and that is the barcode. Every digital release, whether it's a single, an EP, an album, will have a UPC. Your digital distributor can provide you with one. Usually it's an extra charge, but not much. I put my band's uh, material out through CD Baby, and I think it's like 5 or $10 to get the UPC. And you don't have to do that, but it's it's worthwhile because at certain CMOs, you need that. You know, it's like a mandatory section in the metadata. Is that per track or per album or per EP or whatever? Yeah, per track. So it's for each line line item. So it's the track title, the duration, the rights holder, the genre, etc. And then UPC. The ISRC is the unique fingerprint for every recording, but you can put that recording in a single release or you put it in an album or a compilation. Each one of those three releases of the same recording is going to have different UPC codes to differentiate between each different release. The ISRC pretty much should stay the same. Ah, that makes sense. Thank you. Okay, so I've got two more for you. One is NR, neighboring rights. Is that always going to be neighboring rights? Do we have to even worry about that? Yes, actually, because to call something neighboring rights means that a specific country is collecting on the entirety of neighboring rights. And that means on terrestrial broadcast, it means outside of digital platforms, with digital platforms, included non-interactive streaming. Here in the U.S., we don't have neighboring rights technically because we don't collect off of broadcast here, terrestrial broadcast. So we don't collect from radio stations, from television, from anything like that. It's strictly from digital satellite radio. So that brings me to the next one. Do you collect ER, equitable remuneration? In Europe, it's sometimes called or often called equitable remuneration. And in the US, mm. I've heard it called RR, related rights. Is that familiar to you? I've heard of related rights. Yeah, I've heard of related rights. At least uh, I know with PPL in the UK, when if you represent a performer that's passed away, um, they like to see that somewhere in their will, uh, very explicitly, like, you know, my equitable remuneration will, will be transferred to, and then they name the heir. So um, I think it's worth noting that, even though, again, in the US, it's not really something you talk about. In the UK, they, they need to see that or something close to the effect. And on the member section of the IFR website, we have that language that you can either cut and paste into a will if you're drafting it for the first time, or if you, someone already has a will, you, you can take the language for a codicil and just do an addendum to the will. That's a really good point. And I think within the will, you can call it equitable remuneration or neighboring rights, and it'll still be valid. So remember, if you want to see this glossary, you want the language for your will or your codicil, go to www.iafar.co.uk and become a member. And if you forget, you can ask us what I just said. Take care. Thanks for listening. Bye, guys.